Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the torrent of hate speech, delusional conspiracies and threats of violence infecting this election, which are likely to intensify after Tuesday, and examine who is responsible for poisoning our political discourse to the point candidates, poll workers and voters are being threatened and attacked. The answer is obvious. Donald Trump, and to a lesser extent, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch. Joining us is Peter Dreyer, the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. And we will discuss his article at Common Dreams, Wanted for Attempted Murder, Donald Trump. Then we'll examine the main issue the Republicans are running on in this election, inflation, and look into what is causing it, who is responsible for it, and how the cure pursued by the Fed is worse than the condition. Joining us is J.W. Mason, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College of the City University of New York, where his research focuses on macroeconomics, finance, economic history, the history of economic thought, and international finance and trade. He was previously the policy director for the New York State Working Families Party, and we will discuss his article, At Barron's, Inflation is a Threat, But It May Not Be the Biggest We Face. Then, with Saturday's brazen lie from Iran's foreign minister that Iran only supplied some drones to Russia before it invaded Ukraine, we will assess how Israel's new right-wing government and Saudi Arabia might react to an accelerated breakout period for Iran to have a nuclear bomb following reports that Putin's quid pro quo in exchange for Iranian drones is to help Iran's nuclear program. Joining us is Abbas Milani, Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center for Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. And joining us now is Peter Dreyer, who is the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and the Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and the 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Wanted for Attempted Murder, Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Dreyer. Thank you to be here. Thanks for joining us, uh, Peter. And a few days ago, President Biden made an address to the nation uh, where he warned of the threats to democracy posed by MAGA Republicans, and he framed the speech in terms of Donald Trump being the main culprit for not accepting his electoral defeat and then creating the stop the steal lie that's now metastasized into a bedrock belief. He actually said it's not a majority of Republicans. I, I would quibble with that. Biden still holds out hope that there's still some moderates left in the Republican Party. But he started his speech out talking about the attack on his friend Paul Pelosi. So I guess you've taken it a little further here in your article at Common Dreams, Wanted for Attempted Murder, Donald Trump. 
This was an attempted murder by a right-wing zealot propelled by the rantings of the former president and his followers like Fox News, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, radio reactionaries like Glenn Beck and the Proud Boy Lunatics. So why is it that they've never been able to pin these atrocities, attacks, mass killings in this country? You know, you can go back to the, uh, the massacre at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, you could make the case that Trump was responsible for that, and you could also make the case that Trump was responsible for the El Paso uh, Mall murderers. But why are we not making these connections? And and President Biden didn't make it, but you're making it. Well, Donald Trump didn't personally batter Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, on the head with a hammer uh, on on Friday at a to 30 in the morning in their San Francisco house. Um, but his blood is on that hammer. Uh, at least you could say he was there in spirit, if not in person. And I think that makes him complicit in this attempted murder, um, just as he's primarily responsible for the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol building and the deaths and the serious injuries of uh, several Capitol Police and law enforcement officers who were trying to protect the Capitol from the right-wing mob that, uh, that Trump had inspired and cheered on. Um, but he didn't, um, you know, in a court of law, they may not find him guilty of attempted murder because he wasn't on the scene. But he clearly was aiding and abetting the attempted murder, just like he was uh, more than aiding and abetting, but was helping to plan the insurrection uh, in Washington on January 6th. And the January 6th hearings, all of them, uh, showed in elegant detail how much Trump was a part of uh, inspiring, encouraging, and facilitating the insurrection. And again, the attempted murder on Pelosi herself when the the Proud Boys and their friends walked into the Capitol or broke into the Capitol and started shouting, where's Nancy? And tried to find where she, her office was. And of course she was hiding with the rest of her colleagues. Um, but if they'd found her, there were people in that mob that would have tried to kill her. Um, and what was the, what, what did um, the accused or attempted murderer of Nancy Pelosi's husband say when he, walked into, uh, broke into his house, he said, um, where's Nancy? He said the same phrase that the insurrectionists said when they broke into the Capitol. And all this was inspired by Donald Trump. And so, as I said, he's, he's complicit in these murders. The, the same way that um, you could say that Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, is complicit in all these mass shootings by not only the power of the NRA to stop uh, gun control laws, but in his explicit right-wing rantings, I'm talking about LaPierre, um, encouraging people to, to use guns and, and to, go after, uh, to go after people that they disagree with. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that, um, that idiot uh, congresswoman from Georgia, 
um, who's really a Trump clone, she has said that Pelosi is a traitor. And she's also said that treason, and therefore Pelosi, uh, is, a, is a crime punishable by death. So, of course, in that political climate, you know, it's hardly surprising that Trump's followers uh, have tried to kidnap uh Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan and again tried to murder uh, Speaker Pelosi, among other liberal and and Democratic politicians. There was a a report by the Capitol Police recently that said that threats to uh, Congress, meaning members of Congress, have increased 144 percent, meaning two and a half times uh, between 2017 and this year. And Pelosi has been the target of most of those threats. Um, is it no accident that the increase in threats to members of Congress has increased since Trump uh, took office in 2017? I don't. I don't think so. So, um, you know, I think it's 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 uh, it's compelling the argument that Trump is complicit. But I don't think it's likely to uh, show up in a court of law. Um, you know, once Trump was just subpoenaed to testify before the January 6th committee, um, and uh, he probably won't show up. But, um, you know, they're going to find him guilty of all kinds of crimes. That's for sure. Um, and there are quite a few uh, district attorneys around the country that are going to find uh, Trump uh, guilty of other crimes including perhaps rape, which for which he's well known, but probably not murder. Um, and I think we have to, um, you know, add that to the list of his many crimes. He's, uh, he's aided and abetted the murder of uh, many people, and uh, not only by his military invasions and so forth, but, but by his actions of, of encouraging and inspiring people to, um, to kidnap and try to kill people that uh, the right-wing white supremacists disagree with. So that that's the point of my article. Uh, it's trying to just raise the question of, of uh, Trump's complicity uh, and not let him off the hook because he wasn't there in person to uh, hold the hammer and, and beat Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, over the head and, and try to kill him. I mean, we're lucky he's, he's still alive. So, uh, Peter Dreyer, there is no statute then, either in federal or state law, of inspiring a murder, as opposed to actually committing it? Well, you can aid and abet a murder. You can be an accomplice to a murder. Mm -hmm. If uh, somebody uh, is the driver of a getaway car um, in, um, in a murder and somebody else pulls the trigger, but then you drive, you know, you're ready to come and uh, drive them away. You can mm -hmm. be called an accomplice to a murder, and you can be um, convicted of that and, and serve time in prison, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Trump was, in effect, an accomplice to an attempted murder. Um, but he didn't have a getaway car, you know. He had the bully pulpit of being the President of the United States, and then the former president and uh he no longer has a twitter account but he's got his own 
Yeah, well, uh, not for long, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> He'll yeah. be back on so, before we know it. So, so, so you know, uh, he's all over know. the he's all over the place saying, uh, you know, basically. Remember what he said to the Proud Boys, right? Mm. He said, "Stand by, stand by." Right. Meaning, you know, when when the time is right, um, I'm going to need you to do your your dastardly deeds, and um, uh, and they took him up on it. So. If you, again, uh, trying to sort of trace the responsibility, you mentioned Wayne LaPierre in terms of encouraging people to get assault rifles. And assault rifles were used in assassinations, in mass killings in the Pittsburgh synagogue that I mentioned. When I said Trump is responsible for the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, he was the one who was ranting about the caravan of migrants invading America on the southern border and blaming it all on George Soros and liberals. And this guy that shot up the worshippers at the synagogue in Pittsburgh was absolutely motivated by that. He he made it clear that that's why he was doing it, because he was afraid of this invasion. And Mm -hmm. uh, he he went after the synagogue because they had a liberal policy towards immigration. The same is true of the El Paso mass murderer who shot down Hispanics at a mall because he believed, as Trump had told him, uh, that there was an invasion on the southern border and the Hispanics were invading this country and replacing white people, the white replacement theory, which is the basis of so much of the right in this country's belief system, whether it's the the far right or whether it's even the regular Republicans who who believe that the white man is endangered. So Mm -hmm. how do you get this... Again, you know, Biden took took us up to the brink in terms of holding Trump responsible in his speech a few days ago. We didn't go as far as you do, and uh, my sense is that we need to really nail this SOB. Well, you know, Trump, he didn't just um, talk about George Soros and others, you know, encouraging the uh, the uh, the caravan in, in Mexico, and, and um, I just didn't blame Jews for the... Um, replacing white people by encouraging immigration. Trump, um, throughout his career, and including when he was president, made numerous anti-Semitic comments uh, on his Twitter and elsewhere uh, during his campaign against Hillary Clinton. He showed a, a photograph of one of the, his Twitter followings, uh, Twitter his tweets of Hillary Clinton with a Jewish star next to her and dollar signs. Um, you know, I wrote an article about this in Descent Magazine about two years ago, about Trump being basically the America's chief anti-Semite. If you read the um, the Facebook page of um, of the killer uh, or the the attempted killer of Pelosi, this guy, this 42 year old guy named David DePoppy, um, if you look at his Facebook page, it included all the rantings of Trump and his followers, just like you were saying about. Um, the killer in in the in the Pittsburgh synagogue, he posted uh, conspiracy theories that Trump has been spreading uh, and featured on white supremacist and ultra right media, um, including that the 2020 election was stolen, that COVID vaccines are deadly, that George Floyd, the black Minneapolis man who was murdered by uh, the the cops that he actually died of a drug overdose, that the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack was a farce, 
Uh, he, he reposted videos by that idiot, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy that said who's been lying about the 2020 election. If you look at this guy's blog, this guy, uh, David DePape's uh, blog, it included uh, all kinds of right-wing craziness, including hatred of Jews, of blacks, of immigrants, of trans people. He includes anti-vaccine conspiracies, the same thing that Trump's been saying, support for QAnon, which Trump has been supporting. Um, over just one 10-day period, uh, this guy, DePape, had 20 posts where he echoed all these anti-Semitic diatribes. He called the Holocaust a hollow hoax. Uh, he posted a video that claimed that the war of Ukraine is a ploy for Jews to buy land in the Ukraine. I mean, you know, the, the, we don't have to guess where he got these ideas. We know where he got these ideas. He got them from Trump and Trump's followers. And so, you know, um, you know, Eichmann... Uh, in Germany, probably never pulled the lever on a gas chamber uh, to make sure that Jews were were killed in the concentration camps. But he was convicted of uh, of mass murder. Um, so I don't think there's a, a big difference between that. You know, Eichmann said I was just following orders. Well, Trump was giving orders. He was telling people what to do, and he was planning it, not just reacting to it. He was helping to plan it, and his staff were helping, his aides were helping to plan the insurrection. And those kinds of, uh, those kinds of practices lead inevitably to what this uh, guy, David DePape, did when he broke into Nancy Pelosi's house, hoping that she was there, hoping that he could kidnap and, and or kill her. Uh, she just didn't happen to be home. But there have been many threats on Nancy Pelosi's life by people like him. You know, and there are some people, particularly in the conservative media, uh, you know, ridiculously trying to say that um, that the the break in in Nancy Pelosi's house was somehow just another part of the um, of a growing crime wave in San Francisco. You know, just, you know, but you know, that's ridiculous. For one thing. Um, you know, the DePape, who's now been um, booked on attempted murder by the by the DA in San Francisco. Um, he says what he was doing there for. He, he doesn't try to hide it. He's he he was asking where's Nancy and he said he wanted to kidnap her. And, and uh, but he did more than kidnap her husband. He he tried he tried to he bludgeoned him with a hammer. And um, so this wasn't a carjacking or a home robbery or a, a, a drug crime by rival gangs in San Francisco. This was an attempted murder by a right-wing zealot and um, who's, been, who's a Trump follower. Now, is he mentally ill? Yeah, probably. Um, but, you know, his mental illness may get him off the hook in some courts of law. But, um, you know, attempted murder, almost anybody who attempts a murder has got some kind of sickness uh, in, in some way. And, you know, how many of the Proud Boys and other people like that would be diagnosed as, you know, having various forms of mental illness? Um, but, you know, we can't, we can't use it as an excuse for a mass movement inspired and cheered on by the former president of the United States 
and the president while he was in office. So, um, you know, we're we're not that far away from I think, uh, you know, the Eichmann analogy being um, being relevant here. This this is a man, Donald Trump, who inspired, encouraged, facilitated, cheered on people to commit unspeakable acts, illegal acts, and um, and needs to be held accountable for it. That's partly what the January 6th hearings are about, but um, they've stopped short of, of saying that he was uh, responsible for attempted murder. And I just took it to the next step in this article in Common Dreams and said, sure. yeah, we got we got to consider that as part of the uh, the mass movement of neo-fascists in America. Well, you've made the point, uh, which is that Eichmann's excuse was that I was just following orders, whereas Trump is giving orders. So I think you've nailed it, uh, Peter, and I thank you for joining us. Sure, my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Dreyer, who's the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Wanted for Attempted Murder, Donald Trump. We can take a brief station break back examining the main issue the Republicans are running on in this election, inflation, and look into what is causing it, who is responsible for it, and how the cure pursued by the Fed is worse than the condition. Now he's helping for destruction. He's a Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is J.W. Mason, who is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College of the City University of New York, where his research focuses on macroeconomics, finance, economic history, the history of economic thought, and international finance and trade. He was previously the policy director for the New York State Working Families Party, and he has an article at Barron's Inflation is a threat, but it may not be the biggest we face. Welcome to Background Briefing, J.W. Mason. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's answer your question. What is the biggest uh, threat we face, economically speaking? I think the biggest danger we face right now is a recession. I think people uh, really have not come to terms with how destructive a downturn with rising unemployment, business failures and, and falling incomes could be. I think the uh, the focus on inflation has become a little bit single-minded, and we've lost sight of 
how much worse it is when people lose their jobs, lose their homes, when businesses fail, how much more destructive that is and how much longer lasting the destruction is than, than a period of rising prices. But the reason that this is happening, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the economy. The latest uh, employment uh, numbers are, are incredibly good and the economy is doing very well. But the reason that you just cited of the greatest threat is a downturn that hasn't happened yet, but it is beginning to happen because of the actions of the Fed, raising interest rates, which they did by three-quarters of a point just a few days ago. So they're sacrificing full employment in order to bring down inflation. Isn't that the real, isn't that the culprit? The danger is that, yes, that they are willing to sacrifice what is really in many ways one of the most positive periods of economic growth that we've seen in, in many, many years, probably since the late 1990s, um, you know, in the in just to a little bit before the pandemic and even more recently, we've seen exceptionally strong employment gra- uh, growth and, and exceptionally strong wage growth, especially for those at the bottom of the income distribution. A lot of people, you know, in, in low wage jobs in retail and food services have really seen their economic situation improve recently. Um, And that, of course, means higher wages and better benefits. But it also is, for instance, a success of of union um, unionization efforts at a lot of businesses that had resisted them in the past, which is something that is possible in a real strong labor market. And the Fed is 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 right now deliberately trying to destroy that. They are trying to, to stop that. They want wage growth to be lower. They want it to be harder for people to find a job. They want workers to have less bargaining power with their employers. Now, the stated reason for this is to bring down inflation, and maybe that's the real reason and maybe it isn't. But either way, it's an incredibly uh, destructive thing to be doing, in my opinion, for, from the point of view of, of ordinary uh, you know, working Americans. Well, there was a hearing uh, at the Congress a couple of days ago at which uh, Katie Porter, who usually asks really strong and pointed questions to get to the sort of nub of the matter, she was speaking with an economist asking about what's really driving inflation. And you know that the Republicans, uh, their main campaign issue in this midterm election in a couple of days is inflation, and they're beating the drum on that. But Katie Porter's hearing the other day on at the Congress, she asked the economist about what's driving infl- inflation, and it turns out that 54 cents of every dollar of inflation is caused essentially by corporate greed, that they're either taking advantage of inflation in order to run up prices, or they're just running up prices because they think they can get away with it. And there have been a number of recordings of earnings discussions between CEOs of corporations and Wall Street, where the CEOs of these big corporations are basically admitting to Wall Street that things are going great because of inflation, because it's an excuse behind which they can raise prices and therefore earnings. That's right. Yeah. Lindsay Owens and uh, Rakeem Maboud over at the Groundwork Institute have really been doing great uh, work on this. And for anybody who wants to sort of get some examples of, of the calls you're talking about and, and, and kind of get more of this kind of analysis, they should they should look for the work published by the Groundwork Institute, because I think they're the ones who've really been making that case um, very effectively recently. Well, I'm saying that at least somebody in Congress is making the case. Yes, whether yes. The Republicans are certainly not listening, but it raises the question of since this is the issue for which the Democrats are most vulnerable, 
why then aren't the Democrats and Biden and company explaining what Katie Porter's explaining? I mean, that's what I don't get. Why don't they basically say, you know, don't blame us, don't blame the White House, don't blame the Democrats, blame corporate America, and even start boycotting their products if, because they're not, they don't give a damn about the American worker by the seamen, and the American worker is also the American consumer. I think you've heard Biden. I've certainly heard him over the past year talk about, you know, for instance, how much of the rise in food prices is really about these big agricultural processors. You know, it's not that farmers are necessarily getting any more income than they were before, but it's it's sort of the middlemen in this market who are really, really reaping the benefits of rising prices. And I think I think we've seen that. And I think, you know, the way he's talking about health care, you know, where this is, you know, drug companies that are able to exploit their monopolies to raise prices way above the cost of producing these drugs. I, I think we have heard some of that language from the administration of of course, I'd love to hear more, but I, I think I think compared with you know previous Democratic administrations, compared with anything you would have heard from Obama or certainly from you know Clinton, I think the Biden administration has been more willing to make the kind of arguments that you're talking about. That's my impression. Well, it's true to to give them credit. I've never heard an American president refer to oil companies' profits and their profiteering as being war profiteers. I mean, he really is taking them on squarely and we know about uh, inflation at the pump but on the other hand ExxonMobil had the richest quarter in its history 20 billion dollar profit Chevron 11.2 billion dollar profit and so on this is the the reality of what's happening out there corporate America can't deny the fact that it's reaping in a windfall yeah, that's true. Although oil prices are coming down now, you know, energy prices, which were really the big driver of inflation during the first half of this year, have have reversed um, in the past few months and are, are now actually, you know, falling. So I think some of the specific windfalls that the oil companies were getting are, are going to be going away. Not, of course, any credit to them, but just because this is a global market that goes up and down in, in pretty, pretty extreme ways. And, you know, after going up to, to a great, you know, extent, it's, it's, it's going back down. So I think, I think we are going to see a fall in energy prices in the near future. And in principle, that's good news. The danger is that the Federal Reserve, um, you know, feeling under pressure to show that they're, um, you know, hard, you know, dedicated inflation fighters to preserve their credibility, which is the language they always use, is going to go to an extreme, even though energy prices are now coming back down. You know, auto prices, which were another thing that really drove inflation last year, a huge part of the inflation we saw last year was was just new and used cars because of the supply chain issues we're all uh, familiar with at this point. But those, again, have been at least somewhat resolved and, and auto prices have stabilized. So a lot of the big drivers of inflation are now, um, you know, going away except for housing, which perhaps we can talk about a little more. But in most of the other things, bills that people pay, you know, the numbers have really turned around. But the danger is that by the time the Fed kind of acknowledges this, that it'll be too late. They'll have already uh, tipped the economy into recession. I think it really is just outrageous that this little gang of old, you know, economists and, and bankers, you know, to preserve their credibility, to show their toughness, to kind of kind of massage their own egos and and their view of their importance in the world can can destroy the livelihoods of millions of people. I think I think we should really, and if anything, perhaps even be angry at the Fed than we are at some of these business executives who, after all, never pretended. You you know, that they were uh, in their positions for anything except the, the pursuit of profit. The Fed is supposed to be representing, you know, the public interest. And indeed, you know, Powell has a reputation of being somebody that actually cares about 
the average worker as opposed to the the bankers at least that's yes this is what I've, I've... i think i think there's a there's a possibility that powell feels he has to be after extra tough now because he's he's worried that you know he went too far in talking about the importance of full employment and yeah, you know, talking about how we have to think about low wage workers, and now he's worried that that you know makes him look like he's not strong enough as an inflation fighter, and he has to kind of go extra to, to kind of, sort of get out of the position of being perceived as as having a broader sense of his mandate. But you know that's just my my, you know guess about. But the but the fact is, and they're very clear on this language. You know whatever dual mandate the law says, full employment and price stability, they've thrown that out the window. For them, it's it's you know bringing down inflation is is the only thing that they're interested in right now, even though, of course, under the law, that's supposed to be balanced with, with full employment. Well, you mentioned uh, the housing sector. Rising interest rates are devastating for, for the housing sector, aren't they? Because young uh, purchases are, are being priced out of the market. That's absolutely right. And it's it's a real irony right now. It's, it's really perverse that the one set of prices that is still rising uh, rapidly, you know, is, is housing costs. Rents are up about 10%. Market rents are up 10% over the past year, even even more the year before that. Um, you know, and so if you are a renter, it, your your cost of living is, is really going up. Uh, and of course, if you want to buy a house, your big cost is your interest payments, your mortgage interest payments. And thanks to the Fed, those are also going up. But what the Fed is doing is going to make both of those problems worse. You know, housing starts, new housing construction has already fallen by a fifth, 20% since the start of the year when the Fed started raising interest rates. That doesn't, in the short run, maybe it reduces demand a little bit, it brings down inflation a little bit. But in years to come, that means a lot less housing. It means fewer houses for people to buy, fewer apartments for people to rent, and that is going to make housing more expensive down the road. And of course, in the short run, if you are somebody out there trying to buy a house, maybe you're a first time home buyer, maybe you're moving, you have to move for your work, or you've got kids and you need a bigger place, all the reasons people have to move, and you need to buy a house, that cost, the cost you are going to pay is going to be much, much higher than it was six months ago. Yeah, home prices maybe have come down a little bit, but mortgage interest rates have gone up a lot. And that is the Fed's doing. In the name of fighting inflation, they've actually significantly raised the biggest single expense for most families, which is housing. So, J.W. Mason, let's talk about what the Fed should be doing, since what they're doing seems to be so counterintuitive and destructive. And and as you've pointed out, you feel that the Fed is really more to blame than anybody, you know, even than corporate America, because corporate America, they're businessmen, they're capitalists, and uh, they want to make a profit. And if they see an opportunity, they, they seize it. So although it is pretty disgusting that they're price gouging and blaming it on inflation, you've pin the blame largely on the Fed itself. So what should the Fed be doing? Well, first of all, we should not be presenting it as the Fed's job to control inflation. You know, I think there's, 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 it's a lot, it's really questionable whether Congress really ever intended to give them this responsibility. I think there's a good historical case that they sort of claimed it. The Fed's job, certainly under law, as, I, as far as I can tell, is to manage the, the, the banking system, the credit system. It's not to manage inflation. Now, they don't want to allow an inflationary boom in credit. But when inflation is coming from somewhere else, it's really not the Fed's job. The Fed should be managing the banking system, making sure lending is happening on a responsible basis, that banks aren't taking actions that's going to cause them to fail catastrophically and so on. That's a big job. That's plenty of of work for the Fed to do and a job they could do, obviously, much better than they do. But when we have rising prices because of oil, 
that's imported from abroad that's trading in a global market and the price is going up. When we have rising prices because we don't build enough housing in the places that people want to live, and so rents are going up. Or we have rising inflation because, you know, these this handful of big agribusinesses have a chance to jack up prices. Or we have rising inflation in healthcare because, you know, we let the pharmaceutical companies jack up prices on drugs. None of those things have anything to do with the credit system. None of those are problems that are coming from the banks, and none of them really should be the feds to manage. We need other institutions. We need the rest of government to take responsibility. You know, if we've got rising housing prices, we need to build more housing. We need more public investment. We need land use reform. We need rent regulation. If the problem is, you know, in if we've got a, a monopoly, maybe in food processing or a near monopoly, and they're able to raise prices, well, we can deal with that. We've got antitrust laws in principle that are supposed to deal with that sort of thing. We can, you know, as, as, as the Biden administration has done a bit of, as we saw a bit of in the Inflation Reduction Act, if we've got rising health care prices, federal government is the biggest single buyer of health care in the country through Medicare and Medicaid. They can use that bargaining power to control those prices. There's a lot of prices in the economy that are rising for different reasons, and we need different tools to manage them. Putting this all on the Fed just doesn't make any sense. And the, 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 what makes it even worse is that the Fed is not willing to balance different goals. They're not willing to say, well, inflation is bad, but a recession is bad, so we're going to have to balance those. Instead, they're sort of these monomaniacal fanatics about bringing inflation down, no matter what the cost is to the rest of us. So, you know, you ask, what should the Fed be doing? My answer, I have a one-word answer, stop. Stop what you were doing. Stop raising rates. Stop trying to bring up the unemployment rate. Stop trying to slow wage growth. Stop trying to reduce workers' bargaining power. You don't have any right to be doing that. You don't have any business doing that. Just stop doing that. And once they stop, then we can discuss maybe there's other useful things they could be doing instead. But, you know, it's like the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Well, J.W. Mason, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with J.W. Mason, who's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a professor of economics at John Jay College of the City University of New York, where his research focuses on macroeconomics, finance, economic history, the history of economic thought, and international finance and trade. He was previously the policy director for the New York State Working Families Party, and he has an article at Barron's, Inflation is a threat, but it may not be the biggest we face. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of how Israel's new right-wing government in Saudi Arabia might react to an accelerated breakout period for Iran to have a nuclear bomb following reports that Putin's quid pro quo in exchange for Iranian drones is to help Iran's nuclear program. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies and a Professor at the Center for Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. His books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. Welcome to Background Briefing, Abbas Thank Malani. you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Saturday, Iran's foreign minister announced that Iran had supplied drones to Russia, but prior to the war. And of course, that is a massive lie since the drones are being supplied as we speak. And they have Revolutionary Guard trainers in Crimea training the Russians how to use them. And uh, every day, the Ukrainians shoot down these drones, and there's many, many, you know, enormous amounts of evidence of these drones uh, which have been captured, sometimes almost intact. So I guess the government of Iran lying is not a new thing, right? I think uh, the government of uh, Iran, the Islamic Republic, came to power uh, by Khomeini lying about his intention to creating a uh, uh, democratic society, instead creating this despotic uh, behemoth, and they have lied their way all the way till now. But uh, the good news or the bad news is that they're becoming clumsier and clumsier in their lies, and their lies are often uh, discovered even before they're uttered. So why do you think that they felt the need to hoist this lie? I mean, are they feeling pressure from, uh, I don't know how many allies they have, but it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of support for Ukraine around the world, and there's no question that Ukraine is a victim of a aggression, and these Iranian drones are being targeted against civilians and civilian infrastructure, where electricity and grid and generating plants and water supplies, etc., are being devastated. So this is yeah, a really... Trump- and from the time the aggression, Putin's aggression in Ukraine began, uh, the Iranian regime has been unabashedly supporting the, this criminal effort and making the argument uh, very much in line with Putin that the fault is with NATO, that the fault is with the United States. This was an if defensive action. Uh, if the media actually does a little bit of searching in what Khamenei, the supreme leader, has said, what Raisi, the now president, has said, what almost every government official has said in defense of this aggression. You would know then that it is not surprising that they sent the drones. I would be very surprised if they're not involved in also organizing uh, Afghan fighters to go fight for Russia against Ukrainians. I wouldn't be surprised if they're also not uh, involved in helping uh, Russia recruit uh, fighters, uh, Muslim fighters from Lebanon and Syria to go fight for increasingly depleted the Russian army. So the level of involvement in this criminal act is truly uh, mind-boggling. So since there's a revolution going on in Iran, led by young women in large part, is this an element to it too? I mean, I know the kids have got their hands full and they're being shot down in the streets by the Revolutionary Guard Corps and harassed by the Basij militia and also 
the morality police, and that after all it was the excesses of the morality police that started this revolution, is the fact that this regime is working with the Russians a part of the opposition's agenda? Well, I think it's connected with that uh, in two ways. One is uh, Iran has publicly said that they are seeking Russia's help in countering uh, this uh, rising uh, movement against the regime. Uh, but the other thing is that the regime is economically in dire straits and their uh, complicity in the Ukrainian war has caused uh, sanctions to come their way or increased sanctions from Europe. And in their desperate effort to get their hands on some of the money and even maybe entice the Biden administration that still seems to be vacillating about uh, this nuclear negotiations that they're having, the effort to entice them back, I think, is part of their calculus for this stupid denial, the denial that is uh, obviously a lie. Well, there are intelligence reports that Iran is asking for a quid pro quo with the Russians. Now, the Russians apparently want Iranian ballistic missiles along with these drones, and they want a more advanced version of the Shahid drone that's already proving to be pretty effective. So the reports indicate that Russia may offer help with Iran's covert nuclear program in exchange, and that may be a demand from the Iranian government. And so I can't understand how the Biden administration could even be deluded enough to think that there's any future with the JCPOA, the P5 plus one. Russia, of course, is a, one of the signatories to the P5 plus one. So why do they think that there's any chance of that thing reviving? My understanding is that, that even the Iranian government doesn't think that there's any hope to revive the JCPOA. Well, I think the Iranian government very much is trying to revive it because they're desperate for the cash that would come their way if there is a negotiation. I, like you, cannot believe that there's anyone in the Biden administration who thinks that there is a life in this deal. Uh, there isn't. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There are reports that uh, the regime has asked uh, Russia to supply it with uh, new technologies, maybe enrich uraniums, so they can expedite their path to a possible bomb. The regime in this desperate mode might actually do uh, try, make an effort to uh, run for a bomb, hoping that it might uh, save them. But I think they're wrong in their calculation. I, I don't think even Putin is uh, uh, foolish enough to think that uh, giving Iran a bomb in this moment is in Putin's interest. Putin, like China, is making deals with Saudi Arabia, is making deals with the United Arab Emirates. Putin has a desperate economic situation on his hand. And giving uh, Iran what it, Iran might need to make a bomb, I think, uh, is even a bridge too far for Putin. Well, but the Israeli intelligence have been saying for some time that they think that Iran is, they've said for, for months now that they're months away from having enough fissile material for at least one bomb. So now that Netanyahu's come back in Israel, and we know that Netanyahu and, and MBS 
trying to work out a deal. And uh, that's ostensibly why Biden made that ill-fated trip to Saudi Arabia and did the fist bump, which has obviously backfired because MBS is, is in league with Putin and they, and they both want Trump to come back and they're perfectly happy to drive up the price of oil at the pump to hurt Biden. But nevertheless, isn't there a possible new calculus there, uh, Abbas Milani, that the Israelis and the Saudis would be pressuring Russia and possibly even considering some kind of preemptive strike? As if this regime is determined to get a bomb as quickly as possible, I can't imagine the Israelis sitting on their hands. Well, uh, I think the calculus has changed, uh, both because of the, the rise of uh, uh, Netanyahu to the premiership, uh, also because of the political troubles that uh, uh, the Democrats seem to be facing uh, in the midterm election. Uh, Biden's uh, uh, lack of strong popularity, uh, lack of a cohesive policy on Iran. I think all of these have created a new landscape, both for Russia uh, and for Iran. Uh, and the other, I think, important factor to uh, take into account is that the Iranian regime is facing, as you indicated, the most serious challenge to it. And it has uh, also to contend with the most organized, mobilized, invigorated, united diaspora I have ever seen in the last 44 years. And that diaspora is vocal. In uh, your area, they came with about 50,000 people uh, in uh, October 1st, and then again a few weeks later. Uh, in Berlin, almost 80,000 people came. There are 150 towns around the world. The Iranian diaspora came out in one voice and said, enough is enough. This regime is not Iran. This regime doesn't represent the interest of Iran. And the Europeans, the Biden administration, the Russians, the Chinese, obviously follow this as much as you and I do. And they know there's a new game in town. There's a new Iran and there's a new force inside Iran. The woman, as we said, leading that movement and their allies in uh, the diaspora, being the Iranian diaspora, and increasingly many of the people in the progressive that, uh, wing of the Democratic Party, in the progressive uh, movements in Europe, uh, leaving the sidelines and coming to the defense of the Iranian democratic movement and the women's movement. Uh, this notion that we shouldn't support this because we might uh, beget uh, Islamophobia, I think has been a, a false, dangerous uh, attitude. And I'm glad to see from Chomsky to many of the most prominent feminist professors have now taken firm positions that this democratic movement deserves their support. Well, interesting enough, President Biden has not said anything about the revolution underway in Iran led by these brave young women. Uh, however, at a rally, he was asked about supporting the young women in Iran, and he did say something to the effect that the young women will win and that Iran will be free. Do you share that optimism? Uh, I do. I think uh, the Iranian woman uh, will certainly 
uh, win. Uh, the regime might have enough venom for another round of suppression. There is no limit to how much violence they can do. Uh, they still have a small and shrinking base of support. Uh, but uh, I do, I think, I do share that optimism. And in fact, I share that optimism even more than the uh, uh, Biden's uh, very brief statement was that I have long believed, and a couple of times in our conversations I've said to you this before, that the only solution, the only solution to Iran's nuclear program is a democratic Iran. This regime cannot uh, be trusted with any agreement, particularly as it has become even more desperate. And to think that, as you said, that they can now go back to a 2005 uh, deal with the change landscape uh, is a foolish policy. Uh, it's morally bankrupt. And I think it compromises the interests of the United States, the United States allies, and most important of all, uh, the interest of the Iranian people who want a democratic Iran, who will be an ally of uh, uh, its neighbors, who would have cordial diplomatic relations with Israel, cordial diplomatic relations with the United States, cordial diplomatic relations with everybody. That's what a democratic Iran would look like. And that democratic Iran is the only alternative that can be trusted with a nuclear program that might not go uh, nuclear, uh, 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 military, uh, anything else with this regime. If you look at this history of the number of times it has breached what it has promised the Iranian people, what it has promised uh, promised the international community, is uh, foolish uh, and I think bad policy. So, just in the last couple of minutes, Abbas Malani, I mentioned a kind of ticking clock, if you will, that Iran is getting close to having enough fissile material for a bomb, and there have been various reports from Israeli intelligence suggesting that they were months away, you know, even six months or a year ago they started saying that. So if you have to assume that they're that close to having a, a bomb, as this regime gets more, more and more desperate, um, what are the chances, and particularly in terms of an Israeli calculus, now that you've got Netanyahu in charge, we know that he's been obsessed with Iran. Is there a possibility that we could be in for something really bad? And if the Israelis were to try and preemptively strike at Iran's nuclear facilities, which they apparently don't have the capacity to get the underground facilities, but they could still do something in terms of a, of a preemptive strike, how would that impact the revolution? Wouldn't that set it back? I, I think it would. And I think it would be a very bad policy. Uh, I, I've never thought that this uh, uh, issue, uh, this problem has a military solution. Uh, and uh, the regime's uh, threats are becoming increasingly empty. Uh, two weeks ago, the commander of the IRGC made a very direct threat against Saudi Arabia. It said, you must shut down this satellite television station, Iran International, that is reported to have been supported by uh, Saudi money. Some say MBS has provided, some say MBS to somebody else. But there is credible uh, stories about the financing coming. 
And this commander of the IRGC said, you either shut this station down and make them uh, toe the line, or we're going, you're going to hit, uh, we're going to hit Saudi Arabia. They made a direct threat to Saudi Arabia. And two days ago, uh, again, because of the building international uh, uproar against this kind of a threat, this kind of a terrorist threat, uh, he backed down. So the regime is increasingly not in a position to make these kinds of threats. The Israelis have been taking it to Iran in Syria for the last two years. They've, by some account I read in an Israeli paper, they have hit maybe 90% of Iran's uh, positions in, in Syria. So uh, I think Netanyahu, you're absolutely right, he has been obsessed about this. He has uh, many times indicated, claimed that Iran was a few months away. But on the general threat, I think uh, he, he was right that, that this regime was cheating. Uh, he wasn't right on how much the cheating uh, had made Iran close to it. And he too often, I think, uh, said Iran was a few days away, a few months away. But strategically, I think, uh, the documents that Israel uh, took from Iran and shipped to uh, Israel and has now given access to them, to some of the scholars, uh, seems to indicate that Iran had cheated a lot more than anyone uh, ever understood. But it would be, in my view, foolish to attack Iran. Uh, and innocent Iranians uh, will, pay, <laughs> will, play, will pay further for their uh, stupid policies and anti-Semitic and, uh, policies of uh, this regime. Well, indeed. Apparently, Iran does have the blueprint for a nuclear device, a Chinese-designed nuclear device that they got from AQ Khan. So it's just a matter of getting the fuel for the bomb, and they could have it. And again, in the hands of this regime, people have to be concerned. Yes, everybody has to be concerned, including Iranians who want a democratic future. Exactly. I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much. It's always a pleasure talking with you, sir. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Abbas Malani, Director of Iranian Studies and Professor at the Center for Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. He taught at Tehran University's Faculty of Law and Political Science, where he was also a member of the Board of Directors of the University's Center for International Relations. And his books include Lost Wisdom, Rethinking Modernity in Iran, The Persian Sphinx, and The Shah. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.